Welcome to the Upper Room Sermon of the Week. For more information, go to urfellowship.com. Good morning, everybody. My name is Chris. I am the teaching pastor here. And hey, everybody. It's good to see you. If you weren't here last week, uh, we started a, a series on the life of David. <clears throat> and uh, the story of David is the, it's the longest narrative of a single human life in all of ancient literature. Um, so there's, there's a lot to learn from this story, a lot of wisdom in this story. And last week we saw, we started with the big guy, we started with, with uh, Goliath, and we saw David defeat Goliath last week and save, save all of Israel. And um, that made him instantly famous. Um, he was just known throughout Israel. He was a famous guy. And today we're going to see how people reacted to David's fame. And we're going to look at how Saul, King Saul, treats David versus how Saul's son, Jonathan, treats David. So if you have your Bibles, <clears throat> you can turn to 1 Samuel 18, 1. 1 Samuel 18, 1. It'll be up on the screen if, if you don't have your Bibles. So David kills Goliath, and then uh, Saul <clears throat> excuse me, has him move in with him into the royal palace thing, okay? So it says, <clears throat> After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan, that's King Saul's son, became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was so successful that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with the timbrels and lyres. And as they danced, as, uh, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain, this refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. So we're going to look at the difference between envy and honor today. And we have this great example of both in this story. You see envy in Saul and honor in Jonathan. And I've been preaching and teaching for a while now, and I don't think I've ever talked about envy. And I was thinking about why, <clears throat> why that was, and I realized I just don't think about it as a problem very often. Like when you think about the things that people struggle with, you think anger, greed, lust, those things. But you've never had someone say, I have a problem with envy. I think there's a couple reasons, but primarily I think it is because envy is so just ubiquitous in our culture. 
Because every commercial, every marketing strategy is predicated on us being envious. For, cars companies to, for car companies to sell cars, they have to get you to envy that lady getting that Lexus with the big red bow on it in her driveway. Right? Marketing is based on us not feeling fulfilled. So I think it's that we all just kind of live with this low-grade envy. So today, let's address it. <clears throat> let's look at Saul's envy versus Jonathan's honor. In verse 7 and 9, it says, They sang, Saul had slain his, his, slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but with me only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a close eye on David. So that means more than like he just watched him. All right, it, didn't mean he, it doesn't mean he just like mean mugged him. It means that Saul's envy took a hold in his heart at that time. And here, here's what envy is, and you see it here. Envy is being unable to enjoy what somebody else has because of comparison and being unable to enjoy what you have because of resentment. And Saul compares himself to David, right? He has 10,000, but I only have 1,000. There it is. He has this, but I only have this. The first sign of envy is you can't appreciate what someone else has. You can't appreciate her beauty. You can't appreciate his happiness. You can't appreciate their success without immediately connecting it to you, without immediately comparing yourself. Envy makes everything about you. You can't just appreciate the fact that somebody's happy or successful. And what that resentment does is it destroys your ability to enjoy what you have because of that comparison. Theodore Roosevelt said it, and he was exactly right. Comparison is the thief of joy. A guy by the name of Joseph Epstein wrote a book on the seven deadly, sorry, seven deadly sins, and he says, it's a paraphrase, but he says basically, every other one of the seven deadly sins, eventually it'll, it'll destroy you, but for a while it feels pretty good. Every other deadly sin gives you some pleasure, like gluttony feels good for a while, lust feels good for a while, greed feels good for a while, but envy, he says, sucks all the joy out of your life immediately. Envy destroys your ability to just sit down and enjoy the moment, to enjoy what's in front of you, because you're comparing. You're never, never satisfied. It sucks all the joy out of your life. <clears throat> Jonathan Edwards has a sermon he wrote about 200 years ago on envy. And at one point he says, never underestimate the power of envy. And he gives a couple examples as to why. And he says, because the angel Lucifer, he was in heaven, right? Heaven, think of heaven. And he had a thought, I'm number two. And envy made it impossible for him to enjoy heaven. I mean, if envy can suck the joy out of being in heaven, how disruptive can it be in our life? Or, or he says in the Garden of Eden, paradise, no death, no sickness, the Garden of Eden, and Adam and Eve had a thought. I bet you that's the best tree, the only one we can't eat. And he said envy made even the Garden of Eden not enough. Envy made heaven not enough. Envy is what ruined the universe. Don't underestimate what it can do in your life, he says. And look at the spiral that it puts Saul in, verses 10 and 11. It says, The next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully on Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the lyre as he usually did. 
Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. So what's going on here? What's this evil spirit thing? There's another place where we see that same phrase. It's in Judges 9.23. In Judges 9, we're kind of hearing the story of Abimelech and the men of Shechem, and they're starting to hate one another. They're doing these terrible things to each other. Then it says in Judges 9.23, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem. So you have the same thing, same phrase. But you can look at that and go, okay, but now wait. There was already hate between Abimelech and the men of Shechem. What's the spirit of evil coming for? There's already envy in Saul. What's the spirit of evil thing? And what this is saying is, in the beginning, you know, take any sin. In the beginning, you have anger. But after a while, anger has you. In the beginning, you have envy, but then eventually, envy has you. You start with envy, but eventually it turns into a spirit of envy, and you lose your ability to do anything else. You lose your ability to be a free, willing, choosing person. You lose control. Like Here's what most ancient people believed. Most ancient people believed that you can't account for all the evil in the world just by what? By the natural evil inside of us. So virtually every culture except ours has believed that there's this natural evil in us, and then there are supernatural forces of evil out there. What this text is saying is that the more you give in to anger, the more you give in to envy, the more you give in to greed, the more you give in to any sin, the more you put yourself in touch with the supernatural forces of evil outside. And the more you get locked in. Because God honors free will, it's with his permission. So what that means is then that sin and envy leads to slavery. Sin is a prison that we put ourselves in. The best example of this thought, I think, is in a book called The Great Divorce. Uh, It's by a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis. Uh, It's sort of a parable, kind of a fictional story. Which, which, which C.S. Lewis writes this book about a man who goes to, to the outskirts of heaven and he sees people from hell who people from heaven are trying to get to go to heaven. Okay, and they won't go. And at one point he sees this grumbling lady who won't go to heaven who says, she's looking up at heaven and she says, I'm sure it's bad up there. It won't be the way I want it. And the narrator in the book says, well, that doesn't make much sense. Why is she... Why is she going to hell? I mean, she's just a lady who's grumbling. And his guide says this. says, I. But the question is whether she is a grumbler or only a grumble. If there is a real woman, even the least trace of one, still there inside the grumbling, it can be brought to life again. If there's one wee spark under all those ashes, we'll blow it till the whole pile is red and clear. But if there's nothing but ashes, we'll not go on blowing them in our own eyes forever. They must be swept up. And he goes on to say, It begins with a grumbling mood, and yourself still distinct from it, perhaps criticizing it. And yourself in a dark hour may will that mood, embrace it. You can repent and come out of it again, but there may come a day when you can no longer do that. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, nor even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. Envy leads to slavery. Envy becomes a prison. 
but it doesn't just lead to slavery. Envy reveals what is really driving your life. In Saul's case, it was his kingship. Saul tried to kill David six times in this whole story. He's throwing spears at people. He throws spears at Jonathan, his son. He throws spears at David. He's just chucking spears everywhere. And near the end, he starts to just say, I don't care who knows it. I'm going to kill him. Envy is not just the way to slavery. Envy reveals what is at our root. The hope of Saul's life is his kingship. It reveals something in your life which is more important than God and is the root of your problems. You look at what you envy in other people and you will see what you idolize. Is it money? Is it success? A relationship? A way of life? Envy reveals what you idolize. So, Question, how do you get free of it? What do we do about that? If envy is that thing that sucks all the joy out of your life, right? how do we get rid of it? It might be something small, but ultimately, ultimately it's like a cancer that will eat your ability to enjoy anybody else's good or your own. So what do we do? How do we get out of it? So Jonathan shows us the way. And that is instead of envy, honor. Let's look at the very beginning of the passage. It says, after David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan <laughs> excuse me, became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. <clears throat> so you have two people who both see the same thing. Saul and Jonathan. David could be seen as a threat to both of them. They both see God has anointed David. They both see God is making David the future leader of Israel. They both have a lot to lose. In fact, if anything, Jonathan has more to lose because he's never, he's never been king. He's the heir to the throne. So Saul opposes what God is doing. Jonathan embraces it. And what Jonathan does is amazing. When he takes off his robe, he's actually giving David his rights to the crown. So because if you were a prince, your robe represented your position. So if you decided that you no longer wanted to be king, you abdicated your position. In those days, to show that you were stepping down, you would leave your robe on your throne. So the robe symbolizes Jonathan's right to be king. And he's given it to David. And even more than that, he gives him his sword. In those days in the Near East, <coughs> excuse me, you don't put your sword in the hand of your rival for the throne. Right? You put your sword in the stomach of your rival for your throne. That's how it was done. So what's going on here? To offer someone your sword was a way of saying, I will serve you. And why would Jonathan do that? It's not that Jonathan is a weakling or doesn't want the pressure of being king. If you go, go back to chapter 14, there's this really great story of how Jonathan wins a battle pretty much single-handedly. He's a strong person. He's a valiant guy. So why do you do it? Because he sees and believes that God's salvation is coming to the people through David, and he honors God and David, and he gets out of the way. He understands The way I can participate in what God is doing is to get off the throne. So I do. 
The solution to envy, which sucks the joy out of your life and causes us to resent and compare ourselves, is here. It's honor. Jonathan honors David. He's aware and humble enough to understand that there's something happening that's, that's bigger than him going on. If you read the whole story, you read the whole narrative of 1 Samuel, you'll see Jonathan was a person of honor in all his relationships. You see, there was a couple of things he could have done. One, he could have sided with his father against David, in which David would have been killed, and Jonathan would have been king, and he would have been safe. The other thing that could have happened is Jonathan could have sided completely with David against Saul and tried to have Saul killed or even just you know, run away in the wilderness, become a fugitive with David and waited for Saul's crazy party to end. I mean, Saul was going nuts. Saul as king was doing all kinds of stupid stuff. Jonathan could have just abandoned his father and gone with David, but he didn't do that either. Jonathan honored both his friend and his father because he was a covenantal person. He was loyal to his friend David, and he was loyal to his father. He was a loyal friend, and he was a loyal son. And as a result, he got, he got David away, and he, he stuck with his father, in spite of all his father's literally insane political and military maneuvers and policies. Eventually, he stayed with his father in a suicidal military action, on Mount Gilboa, where Saul and Jonathan and both of his brothers were all killed. But David was saved by his friend, Jonathan. David became king. David was released into his full potential because of his friend, Jonathan. And I think to some degree, David learned honor from Jonathan. Like at one point in the story, Saul is trying to kill David, and David's running from him, and there's this Big, long story, but the bottom line is Saul ends up in this cave and David has this opportunity to sneak up on Saul. And David has this opportunity to kill Saul if he wants. But instead, David just cuts off a piece of his robe and then he leaves the cave and he gets up on this mountain and says to Saul, look, I could have killed you, but I left you alive. But there's this amazing verse and it says, afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is anointed of the Lord. You see, there's something about having an honoring mindset that says, I need to honor people even when they don't deserve it. Philippians 2.3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves. There aren't a lot of qualifiers there. It doesn't say value others if they're nice to you. Value others if they show honor to you. If they're above you on the success ladder. Nope, just value others above yourself. That's a different way to live than what the world teaches. It seems like a recipe for disaster and failure in today's culture, right? You might be going, that's good for preachers, people who don't want to do anything with their lives, but I got a job to do, and I got people to manage, and I got a world to run, and I'm never going to get ahead or find success by humbling myself. But actually, Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Now, if that's the promise, that begs the question, who are the meek? I think we think of meekness as being small, being weak. But actually, the definition of meekness is power under constraint. It literally means to carry a sword, but keep it sheathed. It means to have power, but to be able to control it. You see this with Jonathan in the story. Jonathan had all the power in the world, but he controlled it. Honor, humbling yourself, isn't going, well, I'm just the scum of the earth. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying you can't really be humble without knowing what you deserve. You can't be meek without having power. Romans 12.3 says, For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. In other words, you should know who you are. Have sober judgment about yourself. Jesus says that when you go to a feast, don't sit at the place of honor, but sit at a place less than you deserve. That means in order to take a seat lower than you deserve, you have to know what you deserve. Humility is an act of the heart. It can't, you can't be humbled by accident. Humility means I give up what I deserve so that you can have what you don't deserve. Jonathan Edwards in his sermon on envy says, the most wonderful worlds he knows are in John 17, when Jesus on the night before he dies explains to the world and to his father and to his disciples why he's doing it. And he says, Father, I have stripped myself of the glory I deserve so they can have the glory they don't deserve. Jonathan Edwards says, here is the exact opposite of envy. Jesus Christ loves to see people get more than they deserve. He loves to honor people. He loves it so much he's willing to suffer so we can get more than we deserve. It's the exact opposite of envy. If you want to be changed from envy to honor, here's how you do it. And I just always come back to this. Look at how Jesus did it. He stripped off his robe, stripped off his sword, and gave up his kingship and died for us. And he said, Father, the only way for them to sit on the throne of the universe is if I lose it, so I will. That changes your heart. You realize how that changes everything. Because when envy rears its ugly head in your life, you can say, wait a minute, Christ has saved me by his grace, which means I have infinitely more coming to me than anything I might envy in that person. And I don't deserve it. So why not honor instead of envy? You see in Saul, the more he held on to the power for himself, the more he held on, tried to be king, the less kingly he got. Jonathan, the less he tried to be king, the more kingly he got. The less he tried to hold on to his royalty, the more royal he got. Do you want that freedom from envy that sucks joy out of everything? Then make yourself a living sacrifice. Paul says in Romans 12 that it's your reasonable service. That's interesting phrasing, right? Reasonable. It means, how can you see Jesus give himself for you? See him willing to suffer so that you get more than you deserve? How can you see that and not be willing to give yourself without reservation to him? That's only reasonable. 
Amen. Let's pray. Father, take things that we know in our minds and make them real in our hearts. We pray that you would help us to overcome the envy that might might just be very small, but it's already taking out some of the joy in our lives, Lord. We pray that you would help us to remember that you are the one who is the lover of our souls, who lost the throne so we could have it. Lord, we pray that you will give us what we need to be free to honor one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.